You guys remain standing, if you will. And you started to sit. You see, you should know this by now, y'all. All right, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 for our scripture reading. We're going to be a little bit everywhere this morning in our sermon, but Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to begin this morning, particularly in verses 15 and through 20. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or, more, two or three are gathered in my name, there, are, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. So my task this morning is to pick up and build on what we talked about last week out of 1 Corinthians 5. So this is still part of the 1 Corinthians series, although we will be dealing with a lot of texts like out of Matthew and some other things this morning. And we're going to be dealing with the larger topic this morning of the practice of church discipline in, in the church because we feel like it's really appropriate to take these times when we come across them in Scripture and maybe sometimes just yeah, do a fuller uh, picture and, and a f- fuller uh, biblical um, teaching on things like important things like church discipline that are oftentimes neglected in, in the church. And so if you were here last week, you, we, you heard us talk about Paul's uh, serious um, concern for the life of the church there in Corinth because of, of, of some significant unaddressed sin, particularly uh, a sin uh, an, of, of sexual sin between a son and his stepmother, which was, you know, of course, even they even say even pagans understand that this is, there's something wrong with this. And so, um, and Paul is dealing with, um, with this issue. And so he just, just to give you a quick like, look at what we did last week, he said, number one, leaving sin unchecked in the church is a serious danger. We saw that last week. Like when we leave it unchecked, it, it will destroy the church. It will uh, eat the church, eat away at the church. Um, we saw, too, that the church has been given the divine responsibility to confront unrepentance, sin among its members. And that God gives us this authority in the church by, by view of being the display of God's grace to the world. We have a responsibility to walk with one another in love and to call one another and walk with one another and help call each other to repentance where those, that may be the case in our lives. Three, we saw the biblical reasons for confronting, confronting sin um, uh, because the church is a new people. We're a new people saved in Christ. And to allow sin to fester where God has purified only creates a contradiction in terms when it comes to displaying the gospel to the world. And then four, we saw then the church has an obligation to judge that sin where we see it. So all that being today, what I want to do is I want to expand that lens a bit today and, and really just do a more focused kind of one-off sermon on church discipline. And I just want to let you know, like this sermon is a piecemeal together from sermons I've preached in the past. It's also honestly heavily indebted to a guy named Jonathan Lehman, who, who, uh, who is the chief editor for Nine Marks Ministries, and he's written some fantastic books, one called Don't Fire Your Church Members, great little read, um, A Surprising Offense of God's Love, which deals particularly with church discipline. 
and, and the reason why I lean in those guys is because I think he does, he's done all the heavy lifting for me. Um, for, for today, and I think it's going to be, I think, gleaming some of the insights he and others have done, as well as picking up off of 1 Corinthians 5 and then driving into Matthew 18. I think what we're going to do is be served well today as it relates to thinking about what this means among us, this church that really does take membership seriously, or at least aspires to. And, and so I just want to say before we jump in that there, there's really two reasons that I'm, that's driving me to even have this conversation this morning. Number one is the serious lack of church discipline or lack of discipline in the church across the board as we know it. I mean, the church is um, largely losing its ground, particularly because it doesn't understand or has refused to understand what it means to have meaningful membership in the church. It's more than signing, signing on a dotted line. It's more than just your mere attendance, but it's a commitment to one another. And we see this in Paul, but one another is all through the Old Testament, I mean, all through the New Testament. We talked about this in our membership class this morning. And so those who just recently went through that, like this is, you're going to hear some of the things we've been building on in that as well. Um, meaningful membership evidenced by meaningful discipleship and discipline in the church. Like if it's, when, it's, when it's absent, the church suffers. And I think anyone who takes a, even a, a cursory look at the church as we know it today sees that the church is suffering. And it's suffering because of its own decisions to not do and love each other well in a, in a deeply covenantal commitment and a communion with one another. And I'm hoping through this sermon and related to this first point is that for some of us in here that are maybe thinking membership at Grace, this will help whet your appetite. Maybe some of you guys who've not done membership yet in our church, maybe this will push you towards, hey, I need this. This is biblical. This is right. But there's a second reason, too, because equally as much as it's been neglected, there's also those who kind of take church discipline and they make it a hobby horse you know what i mean they make it a hobby horse and so you'll find these churches that heavy shepherd right it's just like it just feels like you go in here and the elders are just like always on your case all the time right and like and you're always watching i mean we i hear news report almost weekly about you know spiritual abuse in the church and and so we got these two polarizing ends of the spectrum and we want to be we want to be healthy and right right where god wants us to be in terms of his scriptures and i think i believe very strongly what we're going to talk about this morning will help us um, split the difference there. So here's the main idea, sermon summary for the morning. Church discipline, and I want you to get this, right? Church discipline is an act of love that is both formative and corrective in order to maintain the peace and purity of the church. I'll say that again. Um, it's a little different than what we had in your bulletin guide this morning, but I, I just kind of shaped it up a little bit more this morning, last night. Church discipline is an act of love. I could stop right there. Church discipline is an act of love that is both formative and corrective in order to maintain the peace and purity of the church. Formative meaning if you're a member of this church, you're already engaged in a church discipline process. By being under the word every week, being in classes, loving one another, serving one another. This past week was a, was a was, we've been serving a lot of families this past week and many of you showed up and stepped in, and that's amazing. But then it's corrective that sometimes as God's people, we need correction. And when we're in a meaningful community, we've, we've invited that correction in. Sometimes we don't like it when it's been coming in, but it, nonetheless, we've been invited that in. And I think when we avoid church membership, and it's in a, in a healthy sense, what we're basically saying is that I'm here conditionally, and as soon as it gets a little tough, I can opt out. 
corrective discipline says, no, I've committed to you, even if it means I go through some hard, and I have to have some, my brothers and sisters say some hard things to me. So I have four, four ideas this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about doing this in two sermons. I'm not. So put your seatbelts on. Okay. We might be here in a minute. Uh, but I have, I have four ideas this morning that I just want to think about that I think will help you. And you see them in your guide if you have them. Um, number one, church discipline is love, not condemnation. It's love, not condemnation. And so the question is, what is love? Well, isn't that the question of the century, right? And our day right now is like, it, that's the million-dollar question for many people is what is love? What constitutes love? If you were to ask the average person outside the church of what love is, they would see it as this kind of idea where we just become affirming and accepting of all things because we just don't want to hurt or offend anybody, and we want to give everyone an opportunity. And unfortunately, many churches have bought into this idea, and therefore they just allow sin to run rampant in the church, and therefore the church crumbles. And then really, honestly, Christians suffer and when Christians imbibe that kind of idea. So love is defined oftentimes by the world as not only not mere tolerance, but full-throated affirmation of sin. Full-throated harm to the sinners. Or at least, and I would say, it's cowardice. To look away from a brother and sister's sin is pure cowardice. And frankly, it, it, it might constitute hatred because we don't care enough to step in. I mean, what, we'll talk about this in a minute, but what father would hear his son, hear the, hear the bells of the ice cream truck coming down the road, and all of a sudden, son, uh, 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 kid three in our house goes running out, ice cream, right, and runs out into the middle of the road and wouldn't go out there and pull him out from the street. It would be an act of unlove to be like, ah, oh, he's going to be happy here in a minute. Maybe, maybe not. And so that's not, that's not what this is about. Paul defines what, a first, what, what love is, at least in some sense, here. And we'll get to in a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. And particularly, Love is manifested most clearly when it is rejoices with the truth, so that real love absolutely is congruent with truth. And when it's not, when it's divorced from truth, all to protect people's feelings, all to protect not having to have the awkward conversations, we actually fail to love entirely. And so church discipline is an effort to say, look, we're going we're gonna, to love flows from truth. It's, again, congruent with truth. The motivation of church discipline is love. For the individual who's walking down in darkness, love. For the non-believer who's watching the church live out its witness, love. For the protection of the church, love. And for the fame and love of King Jesus, love. So let's just walk through those, those four things I just mentioned here about, about manifesting this love. It's love for it's motivated by love for the individuals. The church discipline is born out of a love for, for your brother and sister, the individual who might be in a difficult situation, may be in sin, unrepentant sin in some capacity. And again, I said it before, said it before what kind of parent would, 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 would allow his kid just to run off in, into danger just simply because he might have happiness on the other side of that danger? And that happiness, by the way, is temporary happiness. The ice cream eventually is not satisfying because it's gone. No, what kind of parent would would do such a thing. 
Is it love for my children to turn a blind eye to those potential dangers by saying, hey, whatever makes you happy? Of course it's not. We all understand this intuitively. We all understand this. You know, um, we, we like to go to the beach and, and me and Amanda like to sit up there and the kids get down on the edge of the water and everything. And I'm a big, like, I love the waves. Unpopular opinion, the Atlantic's better than the Gulf Coast. Sorry to disappoint you on that one. But because there's better waves. And I love getting into the waves and I love being tossed around. But my kids see dad doing this and their uncle Patrick do this and we get tossed around. We're way too old for this at this point, but we do it anyway. Um, but, you know, they want to jump in there and they want to get in there more than just when it's really bad. And you've been on those days when the red flag's up. You know what I'm talking about? Bad undertow, really heavy things. And you're like, they just want to get out there a little further and you just kind of see them creeping in a little bit further. Yeah, creeping in a little bit further. Like, I, what would I be doing if I'm just sitting up there going, eh, let them have their moment. I'm having mine. And that's to be honest with you, I think it's what most Christians do if we're not careful. Where it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm too much involved in my own moment that I'm not worried about the moment they're in. And, and that's just so contrary to what we see in Scripture. And that's not to say, by the way, that churches and pastors and the like are called to ward off and protect every possible threat for the members. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. But what it is, it is, to, it is a part of our responsibility as brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ to warn each other about potential dangers and more specifically call members out and for, forsaking those things that are potentially grip their heart in sin. So the church discipline is lovingly and, firm, and firmly warning the straying sheep, imploring them, the straying sheep, to come back into the fold. Again, going right to a quote that I think is extremely powerful from Jonathan Lehman I mentioned earlier. Local churches exist to protect us from ourselves. Like my greatest danger in terms of sin oftentimes is me. Not someone else. Of course, there are the other factors, but it's me. Local churches exist in part to protect us from ourselves. It's the brothers and sisters around us who love us and are committed to our good that help us to see the things that we cannot see about ourselves. We are not the world's experts of us. Love that. It's not just motivated for love for the individual. It's motivated for love of non-unbelievers and non-Christians. Jesus intended our lives to back up our words. And when our lives don't back up those words, people, people are like, well, what's any different between you and me, and why do I need what you got? One writer puts it this way, undisciplined churches are actually made it harder for people to hear the good news of new life in Jesus Christ. Spot on. Because when a, when a claimed believer is walking in habitual unrepentant sin, visible habitual unrepentant sin particularly, the distinction between how a Christian lives and how a non-Christian lives is blurred, right? Confused. We're motivated by love for the church. I mean, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 5 a little bit more towards the end again and kind of touch on that with alongside Matthew 18. But just remember what's going on here is that there's, it's not that the, he's a repentant believer struggling in the church. But what we have is a dude who's actively engaging in 
illicit behavior with his stepmother and rejoicing as though God himself is in favor of it. And he's not. Or at least maybe God condones it. And he does not. For whatever circumstantial reasons may back it up. We all do. We all justify our sin in different ways, yes? We all think it's because someone else or this happened to me and we just never take an honest look at our own selves as the reason. Again, we are our greatest enemy. Paul says no in that text. That evil, that this is evil and it's antithetical to the gospel and it must be addressed. And most importantly then, individual love for the unbelievers and love for the church. Most importantly, for the fame and glory of Jesus, we Church discipline is love. Johnny Mac, as we call him, Johnny MacArthur, says this. God's desire for his children here on earth is purity of life. It is impossible to study scriptures attentively and not to be overwhelmingly convinced that God seeks above all else for his people to be holy and that he is grieved by sin and of any kind. Directly quoting God's command, I in the Old, in the Old Testament, Peter um, commanded the church, you shall be holy for I am holy because God is so concerned for the holiness of his people, he should be equally concerned. Um, We should be equally concerned. The church cannot teach and preach a message that does not live or have any integrity before God or even before the world. Now I know here's what's going to happen. Hold up. Doesn't Luke 6 say something about the fact, judge ye not? Yeah? And the answer is, yes, it does. But let me also say this. That is one of the most mishandled, unripped out of context, misapplied verses in all of Scripture. You just, oh my goodness. He's dealing with the pharisaical, judgmental, dare I say, jerks out there. He's not ruling out the legitimate use of discernment, church discipline, courts of law, church courts, whatever they may be. Um, He's not ruling those things out. I mean, just naturally, you and I have to make decisions on things, and we must judge it for better or for worse, and and whether it's right or it's wrong. And and so there's a big distinction between judgment and judgmentalism. Right? Judgment is a good thing. Judgmentalism is never a good thing, it feels like. Yes? Between a kind of holiness that is kind of a legalistic obedience to the kind of holiness, and it lives under the tyranny of the law and has no grace or gospel in it, versus that kind of holiness where the law is found to be good, as we see in David from Psalm 119, and that, it's, and that the law is life-giving, but only after we've tasted the first fruits of Christ crucified for us and find our entire justification in Him. By grace you have been saved, and this is not of your own doing. You hear me say often, we don't talk about the imperatives of the gospel, meaning the, the commands of the, uh, of the Scriptures, before we talk about the indicatives of the Scriptures. The, the true standing, you, you, you don't obey to become, you become and therefore you obey. Amen. You belong because of God's grace towards you. 
And it's very important that we get these things in story. And so if you're tempted to go church disciplines, this kind of weird thing, it's because you've probably got the gospel upside down. Yeah? So if we love people, you have to judge actions, especially church members. Again, last week in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outsiders, right? But unfortunately, too often we get to that, we get that backwards and we let sin pass in the church all the while while we're being the morality police for the world. Just nitpicking people to death, illogically expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. And we won't even ask Christians to act like Christians. It's a, it's a problem when we get flipped upside down. I mean, do you see the lunacy of such an idea? But it happens all the time, doesn't it? They don't, the world out there doesn't need our morality. They need Jesus. And they need to see people who hail King Jesus as king living as the people of the king. Yes? So Christians should expect Christians to act like Christians. And newsflash, Christians should expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians and not be shocked by that. I mean, that's, isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that, part, isn't that when we preach the gospel, isn't that what we're doing? And sharing with people the, the goodness of God and the grace of God? Yes. Yes, it is. This is what it means to be the church. So, a church, so Christians in sin, motivated to, uh, they're motivated by love. The Christians are in sin, we're motivated by love for them. We're motivated for love for the non believers so that they see a clear picture of the gospel. We're motivated for the love for the church. We're motivated for the love of Jesus. Second point this morning then, because of that, we need to recognize that, that, that church discipline is biblically, um, I, I put it in there, necessary. I'm going to put biblically prescribed is actually a better way of saying it. I believe it's absolutely biblically prescribed. And we, we, just, we just read it at the very beginning, but uh, we'll read it again just because I think it's important that we read at least a few verses again. If your brother sins against you, go tell, it to, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Just stop. The goal of any type of church discipline is what? Repentance. I mean, and, 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 it's, and, it's, and, and church discipline has this kind of widening effect as we pursue repentance in our brothers and sisters. We, we start with the individual, then we move out to get more believers involved, then we move out to the church. But the whole point, the end game, is repentance. So the issue here isn't um, whether or not believers or Christians, as I said last week, will struggle with sin and they can do so and they can, and they can stumble forward and they can be living a repentant lifestyle. The issue here is unrepentance that needs to be called out. If your brother sins against you or he's found in sin, and if at the end of the day, if none of that happens, if none of those fail-safes happen in that widening reality we see here in Matthew 18, what we find is, is at the end of the day, they must be treated like pagans or, or tax collectors. And that's another word for outsiders, for those who are not Christians. Now, let me say, say something to that real quick before we get too far around. This is not the church saying whether or not someone's a Christian or not. I don't have that power of judgment. I am not the Holy Spirit, neither are any of our elders, and neither are any of you. 
I know we all sometimes feel like we are, but we're not, right? But it's saying, as we can tell based on the fruits that the Scripture says should be in life, and particularly the fruit of faith and repentance, not, not necessarily specific things that we like to think, oh, well, if you really were serious about this, you'd be doing this and you'd be doing that. And no, but like a kind of repentance that says, I, I, I'm, I'm living in holiness before God. I, I want to live with God's grace in mind in everything that I am. And I'm going to put this thing out there and I'm not going to hide it. And I'm going to fight any way I know how. And so I'm going to tell you right now, if someone sits in a coffee shop with me and, and, t- and they're confessing some kind of sin and, they, and they're working through it, I mean, I'm listening for, one, just faith and repentance, their, their, their utter com- d- desire to just rest in Christ Jesus, and two, repentance is turn the other way from sin and do whatever it takes to turn the other way. Stop pretending that we can do things in our own power and our own strength. That just doesn't work. And if you think that this passage, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, are the only places we deal with Biblical discipline. Let me just share a few others. I got them in my notes here. You can write them down if you want to. But Galatians 6 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you should be tempted. Philippians 4 2 through 3, I entreat Eodia and I entreat, entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of our fellow, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There was this conflict, and he says, look, this is not good. Call them the repentance. I'm not going to read this passage, but just note down 2 Thessalonians 3. It's a very long passage, 6 through 15. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20. This I charge and trust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you enwaged the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's all in the context of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except in the evidence of two or three witnesses. For as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may rest, they may stand in fear. Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. Paul has some pretty direct things to say about this, does he not? And he's saying this in the context to letters to who? Churches. Local churches. So if you put all these things together, you just see Paul responding to all kinds of things. Hand them over to Satan. Put them out, put, put them out of your fellowship. Do not associate with them, with him, with, with such man you should you, you cannot even eat. Keep away from. Uh, take special note of hand it over to Satan. Rebuked publicly. Is Paul being overly severe here? We might be tempted to think so. This means there's quite a bit of judging going on here. And quite a bit of throwing people out of the church here. And many of us are thinking, oh, this is a witch hunt. I mean, you hear people say this all the time when church, oh, look at they're just they're just doing a witch hunt. 
No, he's not being severe. He's doing his level best to love the habitual, unrepentant sinner. He loves them enough to tell them that they appear to be an unbeliever. He's loving the lost world enough so that they will see what a true Christian is to, is, should look like and that they won't be blurred by that Christian's unrepentant sin. He's loving the church enough to help protect her from the leaven of sin, as we talked about last week. And above all, he loves Jesus. So again, church discipline is motivated by love. It's grounded firmly in Scripture. Three, church discipline calls the unrepentant to repentance and restoration. The unrepentant to repentance and restoration. Again, church, the purpose of church discipline is not punitive. Like we'll never bring someone to the church just to punish them. Of course not. We're not in the job, we're not in the business of wrath. That's God's job. Our job is to say, here's a brother, here's a sister who has confessed Christ. They have fallen away. They're living in open, unrepentant sin. And our job is to pursue restoration. It's restorative, protective for the purity and peace of the church. It's not punishment. It's repentance. Again, going back to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If you take it to him and he repents, you have gained your what? Your brother. That's the goal. That's the key line here. Whenever, whenever we engage someone over their sin, our intent is not to be right. Our intent is not to flex maturity. Our intent is not to show our knowledge of the scriptures. No, no, no. Not even close. We approach them with humility as a goal, born out of love to help them remember that God is for them. The commands, God, uh, the commands of God are, are about their joy, we would remind them, about their gladness of heart, about ultimately their fullness of life in them. And we plead with that brother or sister that, that this way ends in death if they continue down it. And it's hard to do this, right? Especially the closer we are to people. God is not trying to take anything from you, we will remind them. He's trying to lead you into joy, into life, into his best. He, he has set this whole thing up, this whole life that you're involved in, and he knows how it works. Trust him, pursue him, obey him. Amen. And that's what we're doing when we do church discipline. Um, if we approach him lovingly and he... Or she says, you know what, forget you. I don't need you. You don't love me on the standards that they feel like we should love them. We grab two or three others and we go to them. And it's like Matt Chandler said in a sermon many years ago, this is not pitchforks, right? This isn't pitchforks and torches. Um, that's not how it works. No, not at all. We're... Um, you're, you're in the street, you're not looking and listening, and we're tackling you out of danger. Yeah? 
you grab two or three, please don't do this, brother, sister. We, we're in covenant together. Our commitment to you is true. And, God's, and more importantly, God's commitment to you is true. Don't do this. And again, if he tells you again to forget it, what do you do? You take it to the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you know, of course, a writer from World War II in Germany wrote these words I think are powerful. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency, that leniency which abandons another to sin. He goes on and says, nothing can be more compassionate than the reprimand, and sometimes even a severe reprimand, which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. So folks, again, a loving thing to tell a person who's, you know, um, who's, I mean, I'm going to stop right there. There's something I was going to say that I think I just, the judgment tells me I should just wave up on that one. So, so what does this mean if we are to go, are we to go around being sin inspectors? We talked about this last week. Um, every single time something happens in a church, of course not. Again, as I told you before, there's no council out here like judging every little thing that you do. And we don't, we're not making a list and going, okay, we're waiting for a moment to kind of like lay out all the things against you. That, that's not what it is. This is, um, no, no, the cause for church discipline is not sin. It is, or even if it's grave or gross sin before God, no, sin uh, it's the sin of the sinner refusing to fully disclose and truly repent of that sin and take responsibility for that sin. It's the lack of truthfulness about the sin and repentance in that person's life. Again, as we saw there in Matthew 18. See, church discipline is not for the weak one who falls and is still working at repentance, but it's for the rebellious one who denies his sin and refuses to authentically repent. Church discipline is only for the purposely rebellious, habitually, characteristically unrepentant sinner. Because Christians who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit cannot abide for long with known sin. It eventually becomes uncomfortable. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit's work of conviction in our life, right? They, they become uh, uncomfortable and eventually they want to do the right thing. And so we, we do this in their life. So to be clear, the evidence that you are genuine faith in Christ is you're fighting sin. Not that you have absence of sin. See the difference? But that you're fighting sin. It's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not us working and trying to prove that we, don't, we, we can resist sin, but it's, it's the, I recognize my sin, and I'm not going to let this destroy me because I have Christ. Amen. And that's the evidence of true repentance in someone's life. And, that's, and so there's, church testimony is never applied to that kind of thing. Just the church walking with each other and encouraging one another and keep building with one another. But the flip side is when you are not fighting and you're not continuing and you're just continuing in and just saying, I know scripture, but I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm my own God. I can make my judgments on my own. Brother and sister, if that's indeed the true truth of you and it's true of me, there is never repentance in that. There's never repentance in that. 1 Corinthians um, 6, 9 through 11. I'll turn over there real quick. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not... Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So for a Christian to habitually and characteristically continue to live unrepentance is to, is to say, to at least give indication to, they don't know what that passage means. Right? Don't think that you can get away with unrepentant sin, sinful life. Don't think that you can live that way and still be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's why church placement happens. We, we say, look, again, not absence of people who are struggling and stumbling, bumbling about. Christians sin, but Christians are repenting sinners. Christians are repenting sinners. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. Martin Luther said, the essential nature of the Christian life is faith and repentance. That's an indication of true faith has began to take root in our lives. So then what happens then? What's the, what, what, how does this look in the life of the church? And you compare Matthew 18, which seems to be kind of a slow, widening process. It takes time. And you got like 1 Corinthians 5, and it's like Paul comes in and goes, boom, hey, get him out. Seems like two different messages there. Like, like which one of these are we to act swiftly or are we to act slowly? And, and, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you that I believe mostly it's a slow game. Patience, love. If the person's at least meeting with you and wants to this and willing to hear, even if they're still acting in unrepentance, we, we take the slow route. Matthew 18 could take months. Dare I say maybe in a year or two. This depends on the nature of the issue. But then there are times when it's sometimes urgent, like the sin is so grievous and so dangerous for the church and so dangerous for the name of Christ that we must act swiftly in that situation. So yes, step one, go to them. Step two, take another brother or sister with you. Take, step three, take it to the church. And if ultimately, and, and just, that just takes time. It just takes time. We don't, as I said earlier, we're not a heavy shepherding church. It's not going to be our job to like, you know, put the screws to you. It's not, that's, not how, that's not how church discipline works. Formative and corrective. Formative takes time. Corrective takes time. No one hops out of the frying pan immediately. We just hope that you keep turning up the heat. They, they start to realize, oh, I can't stay in here very long. And it takes time. So formative, meaning you're here every week and you're sitting in the Word of God and you're taking communion together and you're in Bible studies together and you're in fellowship with one another. That's, that's time. Corrective takes just as much time, oftentimes. But again, there's times when, when you get into this situation and the, the sin is so serious that, again, and it may be a legal issue, a civil issue, and we just, you know, um, danger issue, and you just have to deal with it immediately and swiftly, and those times will come. I pray it doesn't in our church, but we're ready if we need to. Josh will talk about this next week, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but we'll be dealing with the difference between ecclesial, like, courts, the church, dealing with its own spiritual issues versus, like, those things where if someone breaks the law, like, okay, that's out of our hands now. We're, we're going. And, and, and then how to figure out how that works within the mix of, of all that. So I'll close with this. Most of us know uh, my father passed away recently. And, uh, and I had 
you know, having a rush of different memories coming back through and thinking about life. And he was, um, my dad taught me a love for woodworking. He built beautiful furniture. He had this big, like, 30,000 square foot building. Still does. We're, in, we're trying to figure out what to do with that building now. But, but have you ever gotten a splinter? Like a bad splinter. Like one, like, you can't squeeze out. Tweezers won't work. It's, like, in deep. Right? And kids, have you been there? And, like, all of a sudden, mom gets out the needle. Yeah. And you're, like, you're screaming like your life's going to end. Because that needle's going in there, and it's digging out, and it's rooting it out. I even had my dad pull out a little small knife one time. It's pretty, you know. I, I, I had this splinter one time, getting it from my dad's workshop, and it got so deep in my foot. And I was, like, intent that, okay, you got, you've done enough. And I walked around like, a, like not a very bright person for a while. And, 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 and I kept doing this. My dad's like, dude, this is not good. You need to get it out. And my mom would get it out. And by the time I got there, it was gotten pretty bad. It was pre-worked in there deep. And even... A, Good size needle wasn't getting it out. You know, it's just, that's painful, right? But it was necessary. Otherwise, it's going to get infected and it's going to make it worse. That's what church discipline is. That's what church discipline is. Sometimes, like our friend Joe and Sarah, they, their, their youngest daughter had to have heart surgery three months after she was born. Crack her chest open. Sorry to be graphic. But it was absolutely necessary to save her life. Friends, sometimes that's life and death hangs in a balance when a church doesn't do what its church is supposed to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we think about these things well. And think about even as we come to the table this morning, the kind of commitment we have to one another, to love one another and to walk with one another and to pursue one another into holiness and righteousness and to joy in the Lord and joy in the salvation that we received in Jesus Christ. And Father, all these things, Lord. And let's pray, God, that as we've talked about this very heavy topic, Father, you would just be gracious to us as we live pursuing your glory among ourselves as your people. We thank you, Jesus, for this. Now, as we come sing and prepare for the Lord's table, God, be with us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen.